This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. definitely been the times when I've heard or seen something or had a conversation that has made me think, ooh, there's the bones of a play in that. And then I move on because squirrel. But for people who have more follow through than I do, there has been a fabulous outlet for new play ideas in Colombia for the past few years called the Starting Gate New Play Festival. The event is hosted by Talking Horse Productions and gives both new and experienced mid-Missouri playwrights the chance to write a new play get it workshopped by experienced actors and then have it produced and seen by audiences. And this weekend, the sixth annual Starting Gate New Play Festival returns to the stage featuring six 10-minute plays by three playwrights, two of whom are with me this evening. The mother of Speaking of the Arts, (laughs) Monica Palmer and Mark Baumgartner. Good evening, Monica and Mark. Good evening. Hello. Monica, I know from conversations that you and I have had that you have long had playwriting aspirations. And I'm sure that the, (laughs) oh, there's the bones of a play in that thought crosses your mind often. So why has it taken you so long to be on the playwriting end of this festival? Well, because it was only last year that you told me I had to do it. So (laughs) (laughs) So I completely blame you. Uh, But, you know, playwriting was never something I really thought seriously about. I used to have dreams of writing the great American novel, and maybe I still do. Um, And so I would do, um, in college, you know, I was an English major, and I took writing classes. But my professors would always tell me, your dialogue is fantastic. Like, you should write plays because, you know, the the conversations that are in your writing are so real. And so you have an ear for dialogue or whatever. But it was just this past year that I started dabbling with writing plays. And yeah, so it's it's been a lot of fun. And, and it is, there are ideas everywhere, especially now that I'm teaching theater at middle school. I mean, I, I have a play a day in my head <laughs> with these kids and their drama. I tell you what. <laughs> It's so much fun. Do you have a notebook where you keep notes? Like if you've got a a big list somewhere of things you'd like to write? No, notebook would be way too organized for me. So um, (laughs) I have got like a bunch of post-its like crammed and and wadded into (laughs) things in my purse. So yeah, someday I'll dump those all out and go through and say, oh, yes, I have time to write today. Mark, like Monica, you are probably more well-known on the stage most recently as the excellently evil Jonathan in Columbia Entertainment Company's (laughs) production of Arsenic and Old Lace and also as a member of the Stable Boys improv troupe. But you are far from new to writing, at least script writing for film. Does that serve you well, script writing for film, when you're writing for the stage or is playwriting a different muscle? Well, it's yeah, it's a little different. Like Monica said, it's so dialogue driven when you're doing stage work. But luckily, like all my screenplay work has always been dialogue heavy, so it was a pretty easy move to come over into to playwriting. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's helped a lot as far as blocking and knowing what to write in on those scripts. You know, moving from screenplay to stage. So when you have an idea, when you have that, oh, there's the bones of a play idea in there, do you immediately start hearing the dialogue or do you see the scene first? Usually the first thing that pops into my head is the ending. 
Like, <laughs> and that's I try to figure out my ending. That is, that will almost always be the first thing that pops into my head. And then it's just working. I work backwards. I think that's probably because you started your life as a, as a sketch writer. So yeah. you hear the punchline first, right? Yeah, that's true. It's kind of finding that punchline. Yeah. So I know that one of your plays in this weekend's Starting Gate production is not technically new as it is an adaptation of a script for a short film called Peaches, which you produced with your wife, Dee Dee Farris, which has had pretty huge success on the independent shorts film circuit and which made me laugh so hard I had to get a tissue out. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your Peaches the Play and your second work in this weekend's lineup. Well, like you said... uh Peaches started out as a short film, and we produced that last year. And uh, when I was asked to come into Starting Gate, um, we'd actually had another writer drop out. So I came in at the last minute, and I had three days to pull together two 10-minute plays. And so I was like, okay, you're going to get Peaches. There's going to be one. <laughs> so, um, and then the other one's called Grace of Harold, and I wrote that in a, like three days, and I've done a lot of editing since then. But So that's where those two came in and um yeah peaches uh i i had to do some extending uh i had to extend some dialogue just because it wasn't long enough for the 10 minute play it was a nine minute film with credits so um i had to extend that <laughs> out a little bit and then grace of Harold ended up being like 17 minutes and i had to cut that down quite a bit so without giving anything away give us a little synopsis of both of them Peaches is about uh, an elderly lady that's terminally ill and then on her deathbed, and she's visited by her granddaughter at the beginning, and they have a pretty frank discussion about religion, and um, the elderly lady has kind of lost her belief, and she um, is of similar mindset with her, her granddaughter, and they're the only ones in the family that feel like this. And after her granddaughter leaves, she gets a uh, visit from a, a hospice nurse who may be more than she seems. <laughs> And then Grace of Harold is about a young man uh, that lives with his mother, and um, they live in a little trailer park in Arkansas. And um, he is uh, debating, and he's praying at the beginning of the play, and he's debating on whether he's going to tell his mother that he is gay and come out to her. And when he finally decides to do that, she has quite a secret of her own to tell him. Okay. And both, both plays are... Based on religious issues, I've, <laughs> I guess I'm dealing with a lot of religion issues in my own life after looking at these two plays that I presented. <laughs> so. Monica, the prompt for this year's playwrights was Agony and Ecstasy. So tell me about the painful and joyful inspiration for your two works. Well, you know, everyone experiences both ends of those spectrums. And so I like to, you know, think about what happens on that journey. And and so my first play is Natasha's Heart. That's going to start off the evening on, what is it? Friday. Friday is opening night. <laughs> and it actually has a character named Diana in it. I don't know why. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because I was needing a, you know, wise sage type name <laughs> for a woman. Um, but, you know, the play, um, it has two strangers coming together. I actually got the idea for it when I was hiking in Colorado, and I was up in, in Devil's Kitchen in Colorado National Monument, and I was just sitting there, and I looked up, 
and I saw an etching on the stone, and it started prompting me to thinking about other people. And then this young boy popped up. He had hiked up there, and and he was like, oh. And I said, oh. And (laughs) so he was like, well, that's a cool idea to sit up here and write, because I was kind of just like sketching some ideas down in in a a notebook. And so then it, it gave me the idea of two strangers meeting in a place and and I had been thinking a lot about uh, the concept of care and what what we owe to strangers as far as care and 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 are we supposed to take care of each other you know people who don't even know each other are we supposed to be there for each other and so anyway so it brought me into these uh, the lives of these two people that that uh, meet up strangers and they have some some conversations about the highs and lows of of life and uh, so it, it's really just 10 minutes of, of contemplation and conversation between two strangers. So that doesn't sound very interesting. But <laughs> let me tell you, the actresses, oh boy, I went and saw a rehearsal of this the other night. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take credit for all the things that they added to it, of course. I'm going to say, oh yeah, I planned that all along. But it, it's really something to see how your ideas come to life in a different way with this medium, with theater, because you have actors and directors who bring their own choices and their own insight to the work and it just it becomes and grows into something else and it's it's such a cool process like the whole thing the other play was ways to kill a cat and it's just pure silliness so (laughs) unlike mark i don't think about my ending first and so the first (laughs) version of this play i think i killed everyone i think it was like Macbeth. every bodies all over the floor (laughs) but i i started it with this idea of a box and like what's in the box and if you don't open the box then there's no inciting incident like the the story can't go anywhere and so what happens when you've got somebody who wants to open the box and somebody who doesn't want to open the box and so that's what it is it's another relationship conversation between two people and this box and uh whether or not they should open it and (laughs) so again i know it doesn't sound very interesting and in this version spoiler alert nobody dies (laughs) (laughs) sounds very schrodinger (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> Schrodinger makes a little uh, cameo appearance there. <laughs> so I imagine that releasing your play to a group of actors is like sending out your child wearing what you think are their best clothes and having a bunch of people change their outfit. How did the workshopping process feel, Monica? You know, that's that's a wonderful analogy. I actually said something similar to Heather, who is directing one of my plays. She's directing Natasha's Heart. She invited me to come and and watch the rehearsal. And I said, you know, I think it'll be great. It'll be kind of like a parent-teacher conference where we both get to celebrate (laughs) what we're creating together. You know, because a creative work is is almost like a child. You know, it's something you've created. It's something you've put your time and your your heart and your passion into. And then you put it out there for other people to do with what they will. But the thing is... This workshop process is really, really cool because you don't often get to hear, you know, when you're a writer, it's a very solitary art form. And so you're in a room and you have the voices in your head to keep you company, but they don't always do a great job of acting. So getting real live actors to to bring your characters to life, it helps you hear it in a new way. And it helps you see like, oh, yeah, that's clunky and I need to rework that. Um, and then just getting feedback from people, it's priceless. And I can't imagine writing any other way now from now on I'm gonna have to have just like people over to my house like anytime I write something like okay here's your part here's your part here's your part (laughs) because it's it's so helpful it's so great I hope you won't ask me to come over and do some reading that would be that'd be fantastic oh you know I will and I'll have a bottle or two of wine to go with it too so (laughs) drunk readings 
<laughs> Mark, I mean, for you with Peaches, I mean, it's it's an established film. And so you're adding dialogue to it and then having people workshop it. Did they make changes to it that made you rethink the film at all? Uh, yeah, actually, I wish I could go back and shoot this script now because I, I do like it. I like it more. And um, Ella Folkerts is directing it, who's my stepdaughter. And she was really worried because she was like, I don't want to tell Mark this, but I think this script is better than the short film. <laughs> I, I, I believe it. I believe it. it's true. It was very interesting because we already have, you know, the characters established and they've there's precedent for line readings and everything. And so I got to tell you, I haven't been to a rehearsal yet. Not that I'm scared. I just want to enjoy it as an audience member. <laughs> so I don't want to see behind the curtain. I just want to watch the final product from them. So fingers crossed, I think they're, it'll be great. I know who she has cast in it and it'll be wonderful. Monica, you had said to me last week that you also didn't want to see the play until you were sitting in the audience watching it. But I saw you post on social media something that you had snuck <laughs> into a rehearsal. What made you change your mind? Well, first of all, I didn't want to fe- make the director and the actors feel like mom was in the room. You know, <laughs> I wanted them to feel free to make what they wanted to make. But, you know, Heather has been, uh, Heather Hatton is directing, and she, she's she been great about keeping me in the loop, like letting me know things that the actors had said during rehearsal about the script or, you know, just nice little things to keep me feeling involved. And then um, I had actually gotten some pieces of sandstone, which kind of factor into the script. I I picked them up for the purpose of using as props for this show. And I said, you know, hey, I can bring those to you if you want to use them. You don't have to use them. And she was like, yeah, come on Sunday and and bring them. And oh, and stay for rehearsal. So it worked out with schedules. And I thought, you know, how how bad could it be for me to be there? So I don't think I ruined it too much. So (laughs) (laughs) I did give a couple of notes. But really, honestly, I, I didn't want to give any notes. And I just loved watching what they were doing with with the script how much of a say do the playwrights get on on who directs it and who acts in it monica i chose my own directors uh dana bucky is one of my favorite people in the world same with heather hatton i trust these women implicitly you know i would trust them with my actual babies so (laughs) this creative baby i'm like yeah sure yeah take this i i think you guys are going to do amazing jobs with it but it was it was very much a handover, like a handoff. It was like, okay, here you go. Here's the final script. Who you cast, that's up to you, you know, your decisions. If there's something that's clunky when, you know, you're working it in rehearsal, change it. And so, like, Dana sent me a message and said, we changed, uh, we added a word. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I think um, I would trust them to do anything at at this point because I know how they are as artists and I know how insightful they are with their choices both as actors and directors so once I handed it off to them I was like okay I'm out bye (laughs) (laughs) as I said in the intro this is the sixth year for the festival so that means that the 36 plays have been written over that time and produced But what happens to them then? Monica, what is the onward life for a starting gate new play play or any new play for that matter? What happens to it after this weekend? I don't know. I I don't know. I think um, I've had a 
a filmmaker approach me and say, would you be interested in turning one of these into a short film? And I said, sure, you know, if, if that's something that, you know, you can see happening. Both of them are so dialogue heavy and not super exciting visually. But, you know, I figure, who am I to say no to that? <laughs> so they that might happen. Um, and I don't know what in the past what other people have done. But I think for me, it's been a launching board into like, okay, maybe I could write a one act or maybe I could write something uh, longer. You know, it's kind of getting your start on this journey and making you feel like, oh, this is what it's about. Like giving you that teaser of seeing something all the way through without having to commit the whole like two year process or <laughs> whatever it is to write a full play that you can understand this process better. What has been maybe the biggest surprise or delight for you in sending your words rather than your body out onto the stage? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I think it's wonderful because uh, my work is done and I just get to go enjoy it. And I, <laughs> I don't have to go to the rehearsals and I don't have to stress about learning lines or anything. And I can I can just do my little part and walk away and enjoy it. Get a drink from the bar and just enjoy it. Yep. <laughs> All the pressure's on them. <laughs> For me, I find it a little more intimidating, actually. It's because it's it's a different kind of vulnerability on stage. It's not just, you know, going out there and hiding behind a character. It's letting people into my actual brain. Because these, these words came from my thoughts, and I crafted them, and I put them together in a way. And it feels very intimate to me to put these words out there and let people evaluate them and hopefully laugh at them and feel something and think something because of them. You know, it, it just feels very vulnerable and intimate in a different way than I've ever experienced with theatre. Well, the sixth annual Starting Gate New Play Festival opens at Talking Horse Production tomorrow night, the 12th of November, with additional performances at 7.30 on Saturday night and a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. And there will be a talkback with the playwrights after each performance, I do believe. You can find out more at talkinghorseproductions.org and Monica Palmer and Mark Baumgartner. Thank you so much for the insights this evening. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Whilst six-figure donations to large arts institutions in huge metropolitan areas occasionally make the headlines, within our own much smaller regional arts community, we are delighted when donations creep into three figures. Gifts in the thousands or tens of thousands are rare events, which is why last week's Czech presentation by Veterans United Foundation of $231,530 to the North Village Arts District was astounding and a total game changer for the small organisation which has been organising accessible cultural events since 2009. The cheque was presented at last week's first Friday event by Lois Kay, Engagement Foundation Coordinator for the Veterans United Foundation, to Lisa Bartlett, Secretary for the North Village Arts District's Board of Directors and owner of Artlandish Gallery. And both of them are here this evening to talk about this incredible gift and the sculpture and artwork which it will fund. Welcome to the show, Lisa and Lois. Thanks for Thank having you so me. So Lois, this is such an amazing gift to the arts in Colombia. What was it about the idea of a sculpture and artwork that won the hearts of the foundation's board? Well, actually, the board didn't vote on this. It was the employees of Veterans United who saw that 
the importance of this and are the ones that voted to bring this to fruition. And I think our corporate headquarters being located right here in Columbia, that the employees saw the importance and the value of bringing that cultural experience here and giving us, putting us on the map and giving us a little bit more of a bigger, modern, more progressive city feel. And I think of our five thousand employees, 3,000 of those are located right here in mid-Missouri. And I think it's just something that they were really interested in seeing coming to their home. So how does it work when you're choosing what organizations to fund? You put a series of suggestions out to the all the employees and they vote on it. How does it work? Well, this was actually a special campaign. This was to celebrate our 10 years of being a foundation. The foundation was founded in 2011. And to celebrate, we decided to give away $10 million. So how we came about these projects is a little bit unusual and not our normal way of operating. We actually asked our employees to tell us what organizations they are passionate about and ask them to reach out to those organizations and see if they had any projects waiting in the wings that they've either dreamed about or had been thinking about or maybe had started and ran out of funds and then bring those to us and see if that was something that we could help bring to fruition. Some of the terms that we were using is would these projects happen without a significant donation? You know, would they be able to do this on their own? No. Okay. That's what we're interested in. Like we really want to make change happen and we want to help facilitate that change. So Lisa, tell us a little bit about the sculpture and artwork and and the background to that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of always been a dream to be able to implement something like this, a bit of a pipe dream, I must say, but um, we've always wanted to bring more education and culture to our city streets. And there's been murals that have been painted and put in place one at a time with different property owners. But this is a cohesive project that, thanks to VUF, we're able to do and really plan. We'll have site planning and we'll have so many players that will come on board. Um, we hope to work with the Office of Cultural Affairs and our city and our Parks and Recreation Department and be able to make the North Village Arts District and Columbia a destination for art lovers. So that's the plan. And we are so much closer to our goal now. So the city's Office of Cultural Affairs has an existing long-standing public art program. And I'm guessing at least some of your proposed sculptures or locations will be on city land. How does what you're planning to do tie in with that city's public art program? Well, you know, because this is new and we weren't sure what we could expect, we're going to find that out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And Sarah Dresser is just so helpful. Um, When we were planning the proposal, she came and gave us tips on just how to word things and how things work for them. But yeah, they do the percent for art, which is 1% of new construction has to go towards, you know, an art project that uh, fits in with the plan of the building. And so this won't be that, but hopefully we'll work closely with them and she'll be able to 
help us at the very least, just help us with how do you get the word out for a call to artists mm. and things of that nature. So you've obviously done some pre-planning for this. What locations have you identified as possible homes for new artworks? Yeah, we have a variety and a diverse sets of architecture in the area. But basically, kind of like every nook and cranny, we're going to seek out and do a site plan for, see what works and what really won't. But my vision, and this is not set in stone, and we've just begun to form a committee, but what I see is creating like small vignettes of areas that could have a sculpture and some beautiful art benches so you can sit there and people can gather and uh, maybe a mural associated with it. People could come and play music there at times or put on a small play. We don't have any really large locations. We're hoping that the Ameren UE lot that is on Oren Park Street will become something someday, but we're kind of a ways away from that. So, you know, it's not something we can really talk about too much because we just don't know. But we're hoping with the parameters that were set for that site that it would become a sculpture park. That would be amazing. It would be amazing. It's a whole city block. It's like, you know, that's the ultimate. And it would really do a great service to the businesses that are right there and the community at large. It would be an incredible focus for that North Columbia area. I mean, North Village Arts District, what are the boundaries of that? Exactly how far does it go north, south, east and west? Yeah, it's interesting because we are a geographic location. We had to limit it, although we keep kind of growing out to the fringes. But it goes from College to 8th Street. And there's an alleyway. I think the backside of KOPN is on the alley all the way to Rogers to the north. So right now... Things are concentrated a little bit, but those are our parameters that we can spread out to. And we have members in every area of those locations. And I'm sure everybody wants a piece of art in their location, so you have plenty of opportunities. Yeah. Lois, we talk a lot in Colombia about how we are such a fabulous arts-focused city and how much artistic talent we have in all the fields, music, theatre, performance, fine art, the literary arts. And I see a lot of companies touting the benefits of living in such a vibrant city in terms of attracting employees. But I see a lot fewer companies actually giving to the arts at a significant level. So what Veterans United Foundation is doing is really setting a new bar for corporate giving to the arts. And I'm curious Within Veterans United and the foundation, historically, you were very much focused on on veterans uh, concerns and issues and, and those those nonprofits. What prompted the foundation to really expand into arts giving? And thank you for doing that. <laughs> yes, of course. We are we do give a lot to veteran centric organizations, of course, that is a very big passion of ours, but we also give to individuals in need and national and local 501c3 organizations. So they don't not necessarily all have to have anything to do with veterans at all. Um, 
However, I will say that there's not a lot of arts requests that come through, but I wouldn't say that this was the first one. You know, we also give to the Black Artists in Residency program there at Orr Street Studios. I wish I had on the top of my head, there's another, there is a local organization that helps um, with therapeutic arts, and that request came through a 10-year campaign too. And I think that what's really amazing about, about Veterans United is that our culture is really important to them and the employees are what really make up the culture. And so what is important to the employees is important to the company. And if the employees say that the arts are important to them, the company listens and they're going to seek out and help fund the passions of the employees. And I know that they saw this one come through and I'm sure that they were thrilled to see it because it is something a little bit different. You know, it was a little bit outside the norm of what we deal with a lot, but they have a lot to do um, with Roots and Blues and with True Falls Film Festival, you know, so I would say that they have consistently been engaged with the arts, um, maybe not on this particular level, like you know, funding something like a sculpture park, but they are aware of the cultural importance and want to play a role in that in our community. The Veterans United Foundation has raised over $87 million since it was set up back in 2011. And like you say, this is your celebration of your 10th anniversary of the foundation, and you've allocated $8 million to give to Columbia area nonprofit organizations, focusing on COVID relief and direct program assistance, I believe. Tell me a little bit about your, I know it's down to the employees, but what are you looking for in arts fundable projects? Is it accessibility? What is it exactly that's your philosophy behind arts funding? Absolutely. Accessibility is important. And we are always looking for diversity. You know, we like to encourage and support anyone that is helping a minority in the arts, I think they really want things, you know, again, that accessibility, things that are like upfront and visible, not just to the employees, but to our community as a whole. We are really big on the generational impact, you know, so we're, we're not just thinking about today and today's employees, but we're thinking about the employees' children and the employees' grandchildren. You know, we want, we want our influence to be felt for a very long time. You know, we want our our kids and our grandkids to be able to go out and, and benefit from what we do today and what we're funding today in the arts. And the foundation's money is basically all from the employees, I think. Is that right? 90% of your employees donate 1% or more of their salaries. That's correct. But that amount is also matched by the company. So half of our funds come from our employees and half of our funds come from Veterans United Home Loans. I love that you give so much back to the community. Lisa, $231,530 presents a huge opportunity to create magic in the North Village Arts District, but it's also a giant responsibility to be in charge of allocating all that money to best benefit the community. What processes are you setting up to decide how you spend it? I know it's such a huge responsibility and um, it's also going to be so exciting to see how it comes to fruition and we just all have to remain fluid and flexible. So the first, uh, we have a set of parameters on what we're doing first and second and third. And number one is we're going to set up a committee 
with interested parties who can come together and help us with the project. And we'll have, again, a diverse amount of people. Then we'll hire an administrative assistant to help actually facilitate it because, I mean, we're all business owners at this point or people with other jobs in the arts. And so we'll need someone with a level head who will set up appointments and seek things out and work with planning departments and things like that. Do you have a sense of what your brief to the artists will be yet? Or is it too early to say? Yeah, it it is. You know, we'll hash all that out. And that's where like Sarah Dresser will come in handy to help us. And we have a lot of research to do. How do other cities do this? And really, the sky's the limit. But I do want to say one thing, and that is with this whole process, learning about veterans and Veterans United and what they do, one of our first projects, we want to honor veterans somehow. We would like to either honor them through the artwork itself or work with veterans who do artwork and um, so I think that will be an interesting project. And all of us have someone in our lives who has served. And I think being able to do that will just be really a joy. It's a very specific amount of money, $231,530. How did you come to exactly that amount as opposed to just around $230,000? Well, you'll have to ask Loey about that. I, there's that $30 at the end is going to go towards coffee or something. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that wasn't the exact amount of their request. They did send over an itemized list. However... You know, I mentioned that all of our employees got to vote for the projects that they wanted to see come to life, and each employee was given five votes. And each of those votes, um, depending on the project and the project amount, equaled a certain dollar amount. And then as the employees voted, if you can imagine a little ticker ticking up with each vote from zero to the amount that the organization requested. And so those votes added up to a certain amount. And some people got fully funded. We call it fully funded exactly what they asked for, you know, as much as they asked for. Um, And some organizations didn't quite get that high. And this is one of the ones that didn't quite get what they asked for, although it was very close. I think I I would have to look it up to see what the exact number was. We asked for 234. Oh, that's pretty close. (laughs) So really, really close. Yeah. So it was like maybe one vote shy or something, you know, so it was the the dollar amount was allocated based on the number of votes. So all of the donations that we have given have been in proportion to the number of votes that they've received. Okay, I see how that works. I know, Lisa, that one of the budget parts for the city is not just for building artwork, but also for renovating and upkeep of the public artwork. So is that something that you will also oversee as the Northridge Arts District going forward? Or do you see the city taking over as custodians of the works once they're in place? I'm not sure how the city will receive this and how they will want to work things, but we will definitely have a responsibility to keep things well and maintain them. I think there's actually laws on the books about 
artworks that have to be fixed or replaced. But we will want to do that no matter what. And so there is that sense of responsibility towards that. So when does this all get underway? Do you have an idea of a time frame for its completion or start? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm hoping we can hit the ground running and sort of kick something off right away in January. We'll have to see. We have to see what artists we have on board. We have some great local artists, sculptors, creators, muralists that we can draw from. And we might even have some sculptors that have things ready to go. And we have plenty of spaces earmarked throughout the North Village Arts District. We have some fabulous property owners who are willing to donate that piece of property towards having a little artscape there. And so hopefully we can get things kicked off in January. So for artists who are listening that might be interested in submitting an idea, is there or will there be a website? Will it be through the North Village Arts District website? Will there be an application form? How can someone get involved? Yes, to all of the above. I'm really hoping <laughs> we're like we're at ground zero right now. Um, but um, yeah, we will have um, a separate. And so that those are things we have to develop. You know, um, we have to get our website up and going. We're going to develop an app that encompasses all those different aspects of you know not just the art locations, but how you can become involved and the happenings that will be going on at these spaces. We want to bring the whole art experience to the public. So it won't just be, hey, we're plopping down a sculpture here. It will be more like, hey, community, we are putting in a sculpture and a mural, and we want you to come and embrace this and enjoy the beauty of it. But yeah, we will definitely have a place for artists to submit what they, you know, would like to offer. And the beauty is we will be paying artists well. Yay. So <laughs> that's yeah. always that's always good news. Thanks to Veterans United Foundation, who also thinks that it's important. So it's great. Perfect. Well, from me too, a huge thank you to the Veterans United Foundation for making such a significant and game-changing gift to the arts in Colombia. I hope other companies follow suit. My guests this evening have been Loie Kay, Administrative Assistant for the Veterans United Foundation, and Lisa Bartlett, Secretary for the North Village Arts District Board of Directors and owner of Artlandish Gallery. Loie and Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Diana. Tucked away up a flight of stairs on South 9th Street is the gallery of Doug Soliday Antiques and Melissa Williams Fine Art. If you're not looking for it, you might miss it, but it has been there for over 20 years and is one of those slightly hidden Columbia gems, an eclectic collection of mostly mid-century fine art and a wonderful assortment of antique furniture ranging from 18th century armoires to funky 1960s chairs. Plus, upon the myriad shelves are a trove of 
smaller treasures, sometimes individual collectible pieces and other times whole collections. And it is one of these collections which caught my eye, maybe because it had the word English in it, but also because it is a collection of items of which I own a couple of the more contemporary variety. Small enamel boxes with decorated lids, which date back to the 1700s when they were popular gifts to the person one was courting as a promise of long-term affection. And although these boxes have a long history, there is surprisingly little printed history about them. So I am delighted that Doug Soliday is here to talk a little bit about what are often known as Bilston or Battersea boxes. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hi, thank you for having me. So these charming small boxes were all the rage for decades in the mid-1700s, and then, poof, they vanished from view until they were revived by one English company in the 1960s. But take us back to the 1700s and give us a potted history of these little tokens of love. Well, English wealthy people had the choice of German or French small enamel treasures to give a loved one until 1753, when in the small London suburb of Battersea, an aspiring businessman decided that he would try to make something that would appeal to those people for purchase in England. And he came up with this enamel, small enamel boxes. They're made of copper and covered completely with enamel, and they have little brown bronze closures on them. Well, they're brown now. They were probably (laughs) bronze colored when they were new, but they're so tiny. You'd be surprised that they have such a following. They're like an inch deep, an inch wide, and an inch and a half in the other direction. So they're really small. And they're often, um, they often have a saying on the top, like esteem the giver or a token of affection or something like that, so that it's clear they were given as a love token. They were used, they actually did have a couple of uses. They were called patch boxes because oftentimes men and women would apply a small black silk circle or star to their face or to their arm or to cleavage or something like that, just as a small decoration. And The underside of the lid of these boxes have a small mirror, and so you could check to make sure your little patch was still on. (laughs) So I don't know. That's it's it's a really appealing idea to give something that actually says what you might be a little (laughs) a little shy to say yourself sometimes. But um, the other use for them was clearly as pill boxes. Pills weren't quite as prevalent as they are today. And and there was one more use. They were used as snuff boxes pretty regularly. And snuff is a tobacco product. And everybody used tobacco in some way. So the Battersea Company was founded in 1753. And they developed this beautiful enamel surface. And then they were the very first company, and I just learned this thanks to Diana (laughs) doing a little research, they first learned how to do transfer printing. So you would transfer 
a lithograph or an etching or something, a little tiny one into the glaze, and then that would be part of the box. So that's how these these little sayings got transferred on was through the transfer process. And oftentimes, if it was a figure that was wanted or a floral decoration or something like that, they would be hand-painted and then glazed over that. So they're all really individual, everyone. They're not, at, at this point, they're not mass-produced. Everyone is individually hand-painted by a different designer. That is exactly right. So you'll often see the same, well, not often, but every once in a while, you'll see something like esteem the giver. So this little phrase, you'll see that on more than one box, but the box itself will be completely different. So you're right. Every single box was individually made. And I don't know, that's part of the appeal today. I mean, an individual single item like that just seems remarkable that they could do that and still make a profit. Well, and maybe they didn't because the Battersea Company only lasted three years until 1756. And then a company in Bilston, England, which is north of London, they decided they would take up the gauntlet and they started making boxes. And then there was another company later in the 18th century. So these things were made in England until about 1840. And it makes sense because in the 1830s, the Industrial Revolution happened. So mass-produced things were more available and they were much, much less expensive. So you could give a token of affection for a fraction of what a Battersea or Bilston box would cost. (laughs) Right. So tell me about the collection you just acquired. Well, a woman in St. Louis collected these boxes over the years, and it was really fun to get the whole collection. I mean, there's only there was only 16 of them, and she collected for 35 years. So that gives you an idea how scarce these things are. She had 16 of them, and in each one, or almost each one, there's a little note to where she bought it, when she bought it, and often what she paid. So that's kind of interesting. And I think the first one said she bought it in 1958. And the last one I could find was 2006. So she collected for quite a while. And that's all she had. (laughs) Do you know how she collected them, where she found them? So one of them was from an antique dealer in West Palm Beach, Florida, a fancy antique show. And another one was from a specific house sale. So she went to house sales and auctions in St. Louis. And because all of her friends knew that she collected these things, they would sometimes see one themselves and purchase it and give it to her. So a few of them, the inscription says, gift from so-and-so in 1984, something like that. But she also collected all kinds of other boxes, English and French and American. There are wooden snuff boxes or pill boxes. And I think I got a total of 40 boxes total. I mean, it's really fun to get an entire collection because it makes for such a good display and it makes for 
an interesting thing to talk about in our shop. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do you know? I mean, you're selling them individually, not as a collection, although I'm sure somebody could buy them as a collection if they wanted to. But I mean, how do you know how to price them? Oh, it used to be I had a collection of about a thousand antique related books and periodicals in my library. That's how antique dealers learned about antiques. But I have sold almost my entire collection because all of the information, of course, is available on the internet. So you type in what you're looking for and hit images. And then when you then all the images come up, you can look and see, and then you check what someone else is asking. And oftentimes, we'll price things at a half or a third of what somebody on the internet has priced it because, you know, we're not in New York. We're not in London. <laughs> we're in Columbia. So our business is here and we have to sell to people here. So we have to price things so that people can at least think about buying it. <laughs> right. Because when you look online, when I was researching these beautiful little boxes, I mean, some of them, the rarer ones are five to $10,000. And yours, we should point out, are nowhere near that expensive. So. <laughs> I think there's one that's 95 and most of them are about 200. They do come in different levels of condition because A, they are 300 years old, but also they, because of how they're made, the enamel on the copper often, and because they're well loved and carried, were carried in people's pockets, often there are chips on them. And so that does make a difference, I suppose, to what the final price is that you put on it. Absolutely. The $95 one has numerous chips and uh, it's actually got a little bit of rust on on under one of the chips, which seems crazy because it's copper. It shouldn't rust, but I guess it's just a uh, fair degree over the years that has, <laughs> has deteriorated the, the thing. But the perfect ones, of course, are worth a premium. But I have to say, these objects are very touching hmm. to, to hold in your hand and to think about all that time ago, someone gave this as a love token. I don't know. That just appeals to me. So they were, like you said, they were well-loved. I mean, and used, oftentimes used every day. So, of course, they're going to have some wear. But the price always reflects the condition. It's interesting to think that the main period of popularity for these enamel boxes in England was the same period as American independence. King George III, he of the madness fame, ruled during that period of English history. And I believe you actually have a box in the collection which refers to King George, right? That's right. It says essentially... <laughs> Yay, Britannica, our, our king. We hope he lives a long time. <laughs> so, and you're right. It's such a different perspective than we have. And the British Empire was essentially ruled the world. So they had access to materials and markets that allowed a small entrepreneur to create something like this. And a market happened. I find that pretty interesting, too. <laughs> what would you say is the rarest one in the collection that you have? I do have one of horses on a racetrack, and its inscription is just racing. And the other one is I have one in the shape of a small bird, and the lid is on the bottom, a little tiny, I suppose it's a wren or something. 
and that's the the figural ones are really dear. I think one of the ones you were referring to that you saw on the internet, there was a, I saw a rabbit one on the internet, and like you said, it was well into four figures. <laughs> Has this made you want to seek out more enamel boxes? Have you become enamored with the <laughs> the enamel? <laughs> oh, excellent! Very good. So I have to say, when my partner Melissa and I would go to charity antique shows in big cities all over the country, we would often see dealers, often dealers in English furniture, but as a specialty, they would have small enamel English boxes in a showcase. And I always admired them and thought, oh, I'll find one someday at a house sale or in an antique mall or something like that, that I can have for myself. I never did. I never found one. But I was always interested in Battersea and Bilston boxes. And so when the opportunity came to buy these, it was like a fulfillment <laughs> of of a, a little corner of my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this must be a, a danger of your profession that you find things that you love and you think, oh, well, I won't sell it. I'll just keep it for me. I mean, <laughs> you have all of these lovely enamel boxes that you acquired that was on your bucket list of acquisitions you are actually selling. So how often do you keep things for yourself? You know, I quit my job in 1984 and... I decided that day that I couldn't be a collector and a dealer. There are obvious exceptions. I did pick out one of these boxes for myself, and it's on my mantle, and I'm totally happy to own it. But it is clear to me that I need to offer my customers the best things that I get. I can't just salt away all the best stuff. The juice for the antique business for me is not making money. It's finding a person who loves what I have as much as I do. It's such a high to find someone who responds to this 250-year-old object like I do. And that's it for me. I'm 73 now, so I could retire, but I have no interest in retiring. <laughs> <laughs> you said about handling these enamel boxes that there was something uh, very moving about them, something very personal when you held them. And, and obviously you handle antiques all the time and you're used to that sense of the hidden stories that accompany each piece of furniture or plate or chatsky that you come across. I'm curious whether you come across objects that move you more than others, whether some items you feel have more ghosts. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so every antique dealer I can, and most collectors can tell you stories about when they see something they like and their heart starts beating. <laughs> they can feel their heartbeat. And it's the thrill of finding something that you really, really respond to. On the other side of the coin... Every once in a while, it's only happened to me maybe half a dozen times, you pick up an object wherever you are, and you can't wait to put it down. There is something wrong with this object. Not that there's a, you know, a flaw or anything, but I believe that objects can tell stories if you're open enough to them, and occasionally we'll find something that, like you say, 
as a ghost of some kind. <laughs> what would you say is the most unusual thing that you have acquired and sold on? Oh, gosh. Oh, okay. Okay. I have an unusual thing in my house right now, trying to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> it is a carved wooden female mummy. Wow. It is just a representation of a mummy. She lies on a bonk, you know, a small bed, and she's sort of art deco in style and all one color. And she was part of a ritual, a ritual play in a Scottish Rites Lodge in southern Kansas. And <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, kidding. I had it in the shop for a couple of weeks, oh, 10 or 15 years ago, and people really didn't like it. It was, it was frightening. So I think that's a fairly unusual object. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like she doesn't want to leave your house. I think she found her way there and she's planning on staying there. <laughs> I think she, you might be right. My daughter won't <laughs> sleep at my house with the mummy there. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see the collection of 18th and 19th century enamel and wood boxes upstairs at 11 South 9th Street at the Doug Soliday and Melissa Williams Antique and Fine Art Gallery. You can find out more also at douglaslsolidayantiques.com and melissawilliamsfineart.com. Opening hours for the gallery are Thursdays from noon till 5, Fridays from noon till 6, and Saturdays from noon till 3. Doug Soliday, it has been such a delight to chat with you, and I love this collection. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. You bet, Diana. Thanks for thinking of me. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Starting Gate New Play Festival playwrights Monica Palmer and Mark Baumgartner, Lois Kay from Veterans United Foundation and Lisa Bartlett from the North Village Arts District and antique dealer Doug Soliday. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.